Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hello. What's up, KC? Nothing. And Mr. Peter, Mr. Peter Crable. Oh, hello. Hello and welcome. We are back. Uh, season four, this is episode two. We hope you joined us for our first episode. You can still find it on the interweb. It was a good one, except for one segment that in the show notes it said <laughs> Robbie section was lame. So... <laughs> Skip skip that segment of the first episode, but it's, good, it was to pretty cool. it's good to have you back, folks. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC. Check out the website, edsnotdead.com. Uh, Mr. Crable recently revealed that one of Mr. Sidden's blogs had quite a, quite a bit of traffic, right? Yeah, equity sticks uh, are not enough. Uh, just it seems to be a winner. Just people keep going back to it, so... We will tweet that out just on call a me. very just, regular just, basus every just, day at three fifteen. We're going to tweet that article out. Just, just call me the well. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, who would have thought that that equity sticks are not enough would become such a like? It would just catch on fire. A culture. I'm praying. I'm praying on the inadequacies, the self realized inadequacies of teachers. <laughs> and the funny thing is, several of those blog posts have been turned and published by you know actual reputable large publications uh, and this the, you know this one though has is the one that struck the chord yeah well, meanwhile, well, meanwhile i keep getting uh john deere letters from edutopia whatever john, john deere yeah i don't really know what a john deere letter is but it's like when uh they deny they deny me <laughs> oh so they've been they they've been have you sent them equity sticks are not enough I don't know if I have. I, I've sent a bunch, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a little discouraged. Edutopia so. seems to be a tough nut to crack. I've I've sent a, not. I don't know how many. Maybe a couple. Maybe like two, two or three. But uh, yeah, no, not no, no bites. And they won't well, even give you any reason. And I've emailed them back. Can you tell me why? <gasps> Nothing. Sure. Surely, none of my blogs have been. None of my posts have been picked up by any of those. No, they. Outfits I think you're talking they, about. They, they're too, you're too big time for Edutopia. No, I think it's because I've never published one. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but now you have. All right. Ed's Not Dead <laughs> is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. Other than the show feedback on the Lame Robbie segment last episode, what else do you have for us, Mr. Siddons? Well, a uh, regular listener... And a, a former colleague of mine, uh, Margaret, she said, you know what? I love the show last week, especially the discussion about college kids. And she continued by saying, having two of my own, I would vehemently disagree with the author. My kids are my heroes for navigating a fishbowl life. They have proven to be more resilient and focused during this period than most full-grown adults. The thing I love most about Generation Z is their willingness to be vulnerable and reach out when they need help. And yes, they even form relationships with some of their professors because they are people as well. Thanks for a great show. Margaret you, is Margaret. such a loyal, loyal friend of the pod. She is. She very much is. And uh, she, I think she's listened to just about every episode. And when we see each other in person, she always tells me what she thinks. And I, I'm so glad to get that feedback from her. Uh, so thank you, Margaret. Did Thank we, you, Margaret. Did we, and, text, uh, did we text with each other about something? Somebody said that they really liked how we said uh, empathy is not to be confused with weakness. 
I didn't get that text. Okay, somebody somebody sent that to me. I don't remember who. But it is. <laughs> it is to be confused with weakness. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Sorry, I'm, whoever, glad me that, I, I'm glad Margaret didn't take any shots at me about my stance on that 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 curmudgeony grouchy professor that read the article. <laughs> I tried I tried to defend him kind of yeah, we need, right? We need, a, we need somebody did. to defend them. Yeah. Talking about the bridge over troubled water, we bridge over foil. River Kwai, whatever it was. All right. We have a great show uh, tonight. We are really excited to have Dr. Diana D'Amico Polowitz on the show. Uh, she wrote a very interesting book called Blaming Teachers. Mr. Siddons was able to score her as a guest on Ed's Not Dead. So we're psyched to interview her. Um, there's a lot to unpack there with blaming teachers. So we got we to gotta, we gotta find out what that's all about. And um, before we interview Dr. D'Amico Polowitz, we are going to get into a recent op-ed by um, the one and only Tom, Thomas Friedman uh, titled, After the Pandemic, A Revolution in Education and Work Awaits, Providing more Americans with portable health care, portable pensions, and opportunities for lifelong learning is what politics needs to be about post-November 3. Uh, Mr. Craves, you found this. It is from yesterday, October 20th, right? Indeed it is. Um, admittedly, I had a little bit of a hard time following his reasoning, which I do sometimes. I felt like maybe I was rereading The World is Flat. Um, which is now circa 2005, like 15 years old, but there were some of the same kinds of themes in this. Um, So I'll read you a couple quotes, fellas, and then I want to get your reaction um, about some of his assertions. So first, the reason the post-pandemic era will be so destructive and creative is that never have more people had access to so many cheap tools of innovation Never have more people had access to high-powered, inexpensive computing. So he argues that the half-life of skills is steadily shrinking. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's very uh, Friedman-ish right there. Um, and so then he, then he applies it to the world of ed. Your children can expect to change jobs and professions multiple times in their lifetimes, which means their career path will no longer follow a simple, quote, learn-to-work trajectory. Um, He quotes Heather McGowan, co-author of uh, The Adaptation Advantage, who likes to say, but rather a work-learn, work-learn, work-learn type trajectory. Um, So the impact on education. Friedman says, we've started hiring many people. (laughs) I know this is, Casey's eyes are going to start to cross. Uh, With no no degrees. If you know stuff and can demonstrate that you know stuff and have been upskilling yourself, I need to do that with online <laughs> training to do the task that we need, you're hired. Uh, we think this is a okay. structural shift. Um, and finally, he argues in the future, post secondary education will be a hybrid ecosystem of company platforms, colleges, and local schools whose goal will be to create the opportunity for lifelong radical reskilling. So what I'm gathering is, um, again, he's kind of making um, a flattening argument and also um, 
an argument that things are going to become so decentralized because of this access to technology um, that, correct me if I'm wrong, you all, but this kind of self-directed learning is going to be key to people's professional and economic futures. And that will really shape the world of work and obviously education. So what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think there's some of his points in there, I, you know, I think it would be hard to argue with. Um, I do think there's probably going to be, and we've already seen, um, you know, more mechanization of certain jobs, um, AI and or other type of robots, um, you know, kind of taking human jobs. One such example would be in like, you know, car factories, you know, automobile factories. Um, and so kind of like the line auto worker has certainly disappeared and been replaced by the auto computer technician. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I do think that in general, you could see a world where um, they're basically like outsourcing companies or outsourcing every job. But um, to be honest, I think he, he has his head so far inside the business world and he, he is his... Um, Glor- I don't know if glorified is the right word, venerated so much technology, Silicon Valley, um, that I, j- I just, to say that like it's going to change society in so many ways, in the workforce in so many ways, I have a hard time getting there um, to, to that next piece. So the world that he kind of paints sort of sounds like, uh, you know, a dystopian um, tech-fueled, machine driven uh you know world where every worker you're basically a gig worker going from one job to the next everything's outsourced everything's outsourced by 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 job not like by occupation but by job like i need somebody to make this boom there and so from a worker's perspective like well what do you you know yeah you're you're doing all these skills but if everybody is upskilling and if everybody is getting these new skills on demand as they come out, which he seems to imply that those that do will be the most successful, well, what about everybody else? Um, and to that point, I think, too, that's sort of already how the business world works. Like so many companies have their core operations and then they outsource things to like 1099 workers on a basis for when they get, whether it's government contracts or, or private contracts, that it, to me, it kind of already seems like it works that way. Um, and then that's to say nothing of like all of the other jobs out there that I really don't think this applies to. And I don't know what percentage of the jobs, but to me, we're, we're not even at 50% of jobs or the workforce where this is what he's talking about. So to kind of make this blanket statement of this, this huge revolution coming, I mean, sort of, but we, we've kind of already been in it. You know, yeah, the world is changing, but I'm not sure that we're ever going to end up in this world that he's referring to. Um, and the, I guess the last thing I say, one quote that you did not um, point out is where they say learning is the new pension. And I just don't think there's ever going to be a time when um, unions don't exist. I don't think there's ever going to be a time when there aren't some group of people in some occupations that are interested in a steady paycheck and a steady job with steady benefits. And that's fine. And that's enough for them. The world that he's painting is like this, go, 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 get a new job, get a new skill, go to this campus. And I think it ignores a lot of the realities of what many people actually want. And, and, I, and I think when, 
I mean, you nailed it. Fr Friedman largely thinks in economic principles. Yeah. And the economic principle to me that he's thinking about here is efficiency. He's not thinking about quality. And he doesn't really talk about whether this will, you know, produce smarter people or people that uh, have a better lifestyle or more earnings. Generates more really, revenue. Yeah, he's talking about revenue and he's really talking in terms of um, still, I think, those that um, those that are in management and control um, that have the ability to outsource that work. Right. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the upside is for the workers themselves that he talks about here. Upskilling. Yeah. Well, that's great. So I can learn to use a new app. Right. Um, how, how does that make for a better life for me? Well, and, and think about, you know, and he doesn't explicitly say this, but, you know, I would imagine generally the products coming out and creating the ideas in Silicon Valley, um, you know, he would, would point to as good things or useful things, but how does Facebook help society? Yeah. You know, it doesn't. And, and if anything, it hurts society due to the, the misinformation, the siloing of kind of like friend circles and where you're getting your um, news sources from. I think it hurts democracy more than anything else. You know, and I think, you know, Twitter, like is Twitter adding anything to society? No. <laughs> yeah, and, but you know, it's he, real life. You know, he points to Steve Jobs is kind of like, you know, they talk about um, how you're going to be problem solver, problem finders. You're going to go out and find a problem and then solve the problem instead of looking for problems to then make a solution. But even Apple, I mean, yeah, they, they make a ton of money and they make really cool products, but does it make anybody's life better? Uh, I think you'd be a little hard pressed to argue that. Um, so yeah, to your points, like to what end aside from making money is any of this, like is the goal of any of this? And, 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 and Bill Burr point, talks about on his podcast. Uh, and I know that he, he's caused some controversy with his, with his comedy, but in his podcast, he talks about, he recently just, the last two episodes was talking about went back when he was growing up in the eighties, you know, he, um, you know, he, he self-deprecating to the point where he talks about, he didn't know how to use a library. He didn't go to the library to find information. So like, it wasn't, you know, he was, he couldn't just go on Google and find anything that he wanted. Uh, he said there's a, there's a, almost like a hierarchy. He talks about it, like almost like a hierarchy of, of people that could get information and have knowledge. And now everybody has that. And, and I've, I've jokingly referred to folks when they get their first iPhone, you know, and now you're the smartest person in the world. And I'm obviously joking about it, but it's also, you know, people use Facebook to get their news. People get face use, use Twitter to find something out or they use Wikipedia or they use, they use Google search and kids do this as well. So, uh, I think the the democratization of of knowledge in that sense has a lot of upsides to it, but it we're clearly seeing um, a lot of the detraction and a lot of the the issues that could come with with having so much information in front of us. Well, having been someone that is Bill Burr's age and was taught explicitly how to use the card catalog in a library, the which was maybe one of the most useless skills. <laughs> And awful. I, I remember that too. Uh, it was awful. And if you couldn't figure out the Dewey decimal system, you felt like a complete idiot. Right. And you couldn't um, find so, information. No. So I would say that Google, I mean, I'm biased, but 
I would take Google over a card catalog any day. No, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that. I'm not saying that he is either. What he was joking about was that basically now everyone, you know, at, at some point, people like me and maybe you wouldn't go to the library to find out more information because we didn't know how to use the Dewey Decimal System. Uh, and, and Bill Burr, was, <laughs> I mean, he was listening to Van Halen and was probably not all that interested in learning. He didn't. He didn't. He wasn't there when they were right. doing the card catalog. Teaching. Right. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to say though, Crable, to your point, you know, I'm a, a large consumer of sports media. Yeah. And so I go to a site like cbssportsline.com. I mean, I, I do lament the days where I could see a writer and, and click on their story because I could expect a certain level of quality from their reporting, from their perspective. Um, and now I go and I, I don't know who any of these people are that are writing these articles. And, and I mean, it's the same thing in higher ed with adjunct professors. I mean, this, this, it's already been in the works. And I would again ask, is it better? <laughs> I would say I'm not, I don't, I don't necessarily <laughs> I, I, think it is. No, no. And, um, you know, Casey, you had mentioned, and, and there's this sort of narrative out there that, you know, Robbie, you mentioned in, in the, the lead up to the segment here, kind of like the access to all these new things, high speed computers, um, ease of information at the fingertips. But it, I think that that's a little bit overblown and like not necessarily true. So, right, Casey, you said it used to be that, you know, you, the hierarchy of who could go and get information, you know, who could go to the library or who could do this or who could do that. And I think that just, it, it just looks different now. I still think people still put in barriers to include and or exclude people from the party. So, you know, one of the things I, I, I thought about as he was talking here was, um, you know, we have access via Google. You said more knowledge. I would actually, I would disagree with that. We have more access to more content online. The yeah. knowledge is in there within the content. But, um, you know, now we need to know how to filter between valid, invalid sources, um, you know, look for bias, et cetera. So just because there is information out there, um, it doesn't necessarily make it more accessible. In some ways, it's, it's almost, well, I, I don't know if I'd say that. I would say it's almost more dangerous. But I would is. argue that it's more accessible. I, would, I, would, I see where you're going. Yeah. I mean, the, card, the Dewey Decimal System or card catalogs didn't tell you whether it was a peer-reviewed thing either. I mean, it didn't necessarily <laughs> yeah, right. help you with knowing whether it was good or not. Right. Um, but, but let's say we're in 1984 and there's a pandemic and uh, Robbie was a freshman in high school. and I, I would have been in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the nightly news person is telling you that we need to start wearing masks. Uh, I can't help but think that our country would be in a different place. We yeah. Would, if, if, we, if would Dan not, or Pete, we would if not Dan have 250,000 people dead. Yeah. I know. I, I agree. When did Walter Cronkite uh, die? I, I know he was, he was uh, rather had taken over by that time. This I was can a just ask thing, Alexa. Last episode. I don't want to get into this. <laughs> Alexa. I was going to tell did you the Walter three Cronkite die. Yeah. The three in 1984. Can you name them for the three networks? Brokaw, Jennings, rather. Vascular disease. Turn that off. Very good. Yep. Did, I, did I get it? 
Did I yeah, nail the three? It. All right, all right, sweet. You nailed the three. I was just demonstrating to you my my use of uh, technology to get any kind of information that I want. Um, I do just want to make one last point, um, and then we may be running up against the end of the segment here. So I'll just give myself the last no, word. No, I want to have the last word. I will give myself the last word. No, um, I want to talk but, about but, one more thing. But one, one thing I don't think, um, and I, I don't know whether it has a place in this conversation and in this op-ed, but uh, I, I do worry about is that <clears throat> his thinking is kind of the ultimate in um, the cream rises to the top. It's kind of the ultimate in you pull yourself up by your bootstraps the ultimate in you let your talent do the talking for you, right? And we all know that that is not always the case, that there are many talented people out there who are denied access, that are denied opportunities. And so I think that within all of this, one thing that I'm in is I read this too, I'm like, well, even if this, all this stuff does happen, you know, and all of it comes to fruition, I, I still do think about how, how are we ensuring access for everyone? How are we ensuring that this doesn't just become the old boys network again, um, which kind of Silicon Valley by all, you know, I don't know, something. <laughs> what I hear from my sources, uh, you know, it's kind of like that. So I just, that's just something I want to kind of like bring to the conversation or just, you know, something to chew on as well is that, okay, how are we still kind of keeping all these other factors well, in mind? He, he, he said he basically, and I'll let you go, Casey, but I mean, he's basically talking about the market, that the yeah. market's going to make sure this is all, you know, the market's market going to dictate this, everything. right? The invisible hand is going to be at work and it's going to create this new way of doing business. And yeah. go ahead, Casey. So the, the one piece that stuck out to me was, and you talked about my eyes crossing when, when you're talking about it, but uh, the quote from, from, in the middle of the article, we have started hiring many people with no degrees. If you know stuff and can demonstrate that you know stuff and have been upskilling yourself with online training to do the task that we need, you're hired. Um, I, you know, can you bring that into the education world and what does that look like? I don't know. It looks I mean, like TF- it looks like TFA. It's TFA. You get a crash course in teaching and, um, you know, how, how much does, how much does the role, what's the role look like for higher education institutions where um, they're circumvented from the, that power dynamic? Because right now, post-secondary education institutions hold all the power for our teaching force. And, you know, those, you can call them barriers, you can call them hoops. I mean, there's, there's an argument to be had about the value of a post-secondary education you know, learning sequence with regard to uh, education. Like uh, you talk to most teachers that come out of school, ask them about their classroom management class that they took, you know, from someone who's never been in a middle school classroom ever, you know, Um, I I, I don't, I don't mean to, I certainly don't want to. I I know where we're going with this. I know. No, you don't know where I'm going with this because in the past, I, you could say I, I certainly would be, painting with a very broad brush, but I feel like there, there no. certainly is, I certainly there, I think there's some nuance to be had about the value of, of teaching certificates coming from post-secondary education institutions. Would you be referring to the professionalization of the teaching force? I, I mean, we can, 
I just did a segue. We can talk talk about that with with Dr. Uh, Polowitz, certainly. Except it's called the over-professionalization. And uh, and you brought that up before we got on air, Robbie, and I never really thought about it, but like, you know, there's a certain amount of hoops and ridiculousness that teachers have to deal with. And I wonder, maybe it's a a discussion for another day, but um, how much of it is outdated and how much of it is is completely useless to a teacher's career. Well, it's, it's, I will, uh, the only thing I know about it, um, it has something to do with the Bandurian triangle. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I love I'm just the, ben, <laughs> the Bandurian <laughs> triangle. I'm just kidding. It doesn't, it has, it actually has to do with John Meyer who, who talked extensively, all of these things related to teacher over professionalization of the teaching profession. Um, you can find some good, good, interesting theories about it in John Meyer's work on institutionalism. Well, all, I, of these, I, all of these things are connected. All right. Yeah, and with, I, I, want, I wonder the last piece uh, that I, that you got me thinking about was, you know, you can look up a, enough data about the education level and amount of training that individual teachers get over a period of, you know, years and how that does not correlate to their prestige, their professional level, and certainly their pay. And, yeah. and uh, this particular change that Thomas Friedman is talking about is certainly not going to help. And that. you left you left one factor out: their effectiveness and student impact. You know yeah. what is what does that have to do with student impact? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, and I will tell you this: I'll leave you with this. I'll get the last word, Mr. Crable. <laughs> if if what Friedman is envisioning is anything like what we're doing all day, every day, right now. I'm going to be in North Dakota uh, <laughs> with our next guest, Dr. Diana D'Amico Polowitz. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're looking forward to interviewing. We'll be right back. Right, fellas, we are incredibly uh, excited to have Dr. Diana D'Amico Polowitz on Ed's Not Dead. Uh, welcome, Dr. D'Amico Polowitz. We're very happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, but before we get into the first question, I want to read your bio. So, Dr. Polowitz is a historian of education and social policy. She's an assistant professor in the Educational Foundation, Foundations and Research Program at the University of North Dakota. Dr. Polowitz's research explores school policy as social policy and centers on fundamental questions around equity, race, power, and the role of institutions in creating or disrupting inequality. All right, so let's jump in. In your book, Blaming Teachers, you note how teachers have consistently stood in kind of a state of blame and reform. You note examples that date all the way back from the 1800s. What narratives need to change surrounding our public school educators? And uh, if they do change, how do, how do you envision this change over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Get right to it. It's like <laughs> a question, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so what the book shows is that, you know, we've done this historical dance for a long time, right? Like, oh, our schools are super important. We value our schools. But then also a sense of, gosh, our schools are failing, right? And so those two things have gone hand in hand. And then to add to that, why? Why are our schools failing? It's the teachers. 
If only we had better teachers, well, then we'd have better schools, student performance would go up, and you know what? We'd have better society, right? Like Economic problems would be solved, international competition would be much higher, all of these things, right? And so in the name of teacher reform through school reform, we've ha- we see this wave of professionalization policies, right? Trying to make teachers into something else, into better somehow. But what I find in the book is that professionalization as other fields have experienced it had almost no bearing on what teachers went through, right? Professionalization reforms is very much about fitting them to this larger growing bureaucracy, right? Um, So it was um, reform in the name of standardization. So teachers in the name of all this reform found themselves with less voice. They found themselves compartmentalized to their classrooms. They found themselves in the bottom of this towering bureaucratic organization. So, you know, I kind of write against the idea that like teachers, you just need to speak up. That would change things, right? What I find in the book and what's obviously happening now is teachers are speaking up. We're just not listening, (laughs) We're just not listening. There's no space for them at the table, right? No meaningful space for teachers at the table. So I think real change would would be structural. Honestly, it would be structural thinking about the role of teachers as leaders in our schools, as decision makers, um, and the ways that we defer to teachers. But a lot would have to change to make space for that. So, So let me give you an example and tell you if I'm right. Like the bureaucratic labyrinth that you have to navigate with certification or the highly qualified designation that came out of no child left behind. Are those examples of what you're, what you're talking about that teachers really probably had very little input in? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was a study that came out shortly after um, NCLB came out. It was interviewing teachers. Like, are you, and are you highly qualified? And teachers like, I have no idea. <laughs> what, what does it even mean? Right. You know, I, I have this this quote in the book from, you know, sometime early 1900s, let's say. And I, it's Nicholas Murray Butler. And he is complaining about who is a pretty well-known education reformer for that time. And he's talking about all the problems with the schools. And he's like, really, it comes down to the fact that we need to teacher proof our schools. Right. We need to make it so we can't have folks kind of messing it up. And, and there are other folks at the time who are saying, you know, there maybe something will be lost. Right. Maybe there are some great folks who are not going to be able to do their thing. But we need a lot of teachers. And, and the kind of compromise historically has been that's a price we're willing to pay. And, and, I, and I, I would argue that that professionalization, for example, I think John Hanushek at Stanford has found the highly qualified designation from NCLB had zero impact on student achievement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so, so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, you talk about you compare uh, the, the professionalization of lawyers and doctors. And I, I was just thinking about how, uh, that, how interesting it is that, um, and I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, attorneys and doctors for years and years were male only and male centered professions. And you do talk about the, you know, the labor of history of working women in the teaching profession. So can you, can you kind of elaborate on, on where you see those two worlds colliding? Yeah. Yeah. That's great, Casey. I mean, I think that's a huge part of the puzzle. And so you think about what has to change. Um, I think it's confronting this history that you're pointing us to right here. Right. So when we are getting the modern teaching profession, so we've got teachers for a super long time, but it's not until we have the rise of municipally supported 
public school systems in like the mid 1800s that we'd be see public schools that would be familiar to us today, right? right, right. We see public school teachers in the way we understand it today. And it's at that moment, we have the, and the mass entrance of women into the schools, right? And it's not coincidental. They're not, they don't just happen to be there, right? They are specifically recruited because they're seen to be affordable, cheap, right? Um, because there's a lot of them, folks are like, well, they're not really doing much else right now, right? There's not a lot of opportunities. And they're seen to be good rule as good rule followers. And that's a huge part of this. Our early public schools were really a response to this rising wave of immigration that caused a lot of anxiety for folks. And they're thinking of schools as stand-in homes and teachers as stand-in mothers. So these Victorian notions of how women are docile and maternal and nurturing is very much baked into early ideas of what it meant to be a professional teacher. Right. And so, you know, jump to the future. Right. Women can run for our highest office. We can own property, (laughs) vote and all these other things. But we're still working with a structure. Right. With an institution that has these premises baked into it, you know, and the same goes for race. Right. Right. About why has inequality been this like intractable problem? Well, because the institutions that we're working with were created at a time when equality was so far from a goal, so far from something that was uh, manifested at that time. So I want to go back a little bit to the system or the the cycle, I guess, of uh, blame and reform, just because I feel like we have a really excellent example um, where like it hyper shifting. So last, sometime last year when it was like the Red for Ed movement, it felt like there was a lot of public support behind teachers and everybody's like, yeah, teachers, they do a lot. They really help our kids. Like they're, they're filling so many roles and, you know, fast forward a year or even less later. And now we're like, well, teachers don't want to go back to work during a global pandemic. Well, they're selfish, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, and so I, I, you know, as you're talking about gender, um, race inequality, so I guess, are those the things that you would point to for why teachers always come back as the root of the problem. Like we don't talk about structural changes in schools. We don't talk about, you know, why and the purpose of schools, we go back to teachers. We'll just, just fix the teachers and everything's fine. Like what's, what's up with that? Yeah. I mean, I think they're easy targets, right? I think they're easy targets. It's much easier to blame teachers and try and reform teachers and to make structural change to, to talk about, um, you know, how we might have to shift who has power in our schools, how we have to might, how we have to shift, um, how we test and measure learning and define success and all of that. But yeah, I mean, for sure, there's this historical kind of story that's played out where there's, you know, teachers live their lives on like two sides of the same coin, right? Either teachers are our saviors, <laughs> right? Um, and we're just talking about how, how self-sacrificing they are, right? That's where we were, like you were saying last spring, like take all the money, teachers, just take my kids, <laughs> whatever you do. But then, you know, this moment I think is so unique because we can see how fast that shifts, right? So the other side of the coin is where we are now, which is teachers are the problem, right? They're greedy. They're self-interested. If they don't want to go back to school, it's not because they have legitimate concerns. It's because, you know, they're just in it for themselves. And I think both sides of those coins are deeply deprofessionalizing, right? And do trace back to this sort of larger gendered story, right? Where we don't really look to teachers to have expertise and authority, but we're kind of undermining them, right? That either they're like moms and they're self-sacrificing and giving, or they're greedy. 
and I, I may be opening a can of worms here, and I, <laughs> I don't know if you wrote about this or have looked into this at all, but um, have you looked into like the role of unions at all? Do they play any role in professionalization or deprofessional or just anything? I just wonder if you've studied at all um, their role kind of in the larger picture of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a big part of the book. I'm working on another book now all about unions. Um, so yeah, they're a huge part of the story. And there's no kind of simple, you know, I get asked a lot of times, are, are unions good or bad, right, for our schools? And it's just not even, you know, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. I think what I would say is that given the way our schools are historically and today, unions are inevitable. Yeah. Right? Unions are inevitable byproducts of the public schools we have created. Right. And I think you look at this moment right now in the midst of this pandemic, um, you know, if we didn't have unions, we'd be missing a really critical voice. Right. We see with a lot of these school reopening plans, teachers have not particularly been consulted. And it's only when the union has come in and said, uh, it doesn't seem safe (laughs) (laughs) that folks have backpedaled. Um, So I think what, you know, this moment is really showing us is that if we didn't have a union, um, teachers would be in a pretty, would be in dire straits, right? There are not really other mechanisms for them to assert their voice and have authority in the schools. Right. And that's because of the way we structured our schools historically. So kind of uh, switching gears a little bit. So we have a segment on our show called Dear Betsy, um, which is kind of love letters to our wonderful education secretary, Betsy DeVos. She has not replied to my responses to uh, come on the show, but over the past four years, um, it, it's it's been my belief that Betsy, as education secretary, has really sought to diminish the importance of public education, public education bureaucracy, the power of the public, the Department of uh, Education overall. So, given that in this role, if if we had someone that believed in public education. What kind of change do you think we could see in terms of the professionalization of, of teachers overall? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I think one of the things I see historically and today is that public schools are central to our democracy, right? They are like this key, um, right, key but imperfect institution in our democracy. And so we it can't be the zero sum game, right? We have to accept that our public schools are perfectly functioning um, and are great or that they are terrible and we should have, you know, charters and choice and all these things instead, right? You know, and so I think that we, I think that if we really valued public education, we would really value public school teachers. Yeah. Right. And I think, what would that look like? Well, I think that you know, we have to think about the, the way we distribute authority in our schools. So, you know, I think with reopening plans and lots of other examples, what we see are bureaucratic solutions to pedagogical problems. Yeah. I think that's backwards, right? And so if we were, what if we reoriented that, right? What if we turned to teachers, we deferred to teachers to lead us in conversations about what school reform looked like? Um, and then turn to all the other folks around the educational complex to make it happen, right? But right now, you know, we're, we're in an industry, really. Our education, public education is becoming so privatized in so many ways from, you know, the curricula we use to the tests we, these high-stake tests that shape what teaching looks like that is invested, right? We have these right. industries that are invested in the idea that teachers can't do the work on their own. 
Teachers can't possibly design curricula in a trustworthy way. Teachers can't possibly um, define what, you know, to assess what kids need to learn. It's it's that premise that has made space for these industries. So I want to get you out of here on one last question. Um, <laughs> along with what you were talking about. Well, I have a so, quiz for, I have a quiz oh, for have a quiz. quiz. Sorry. All right. Even better. <laughs> Maybe I won't ask my question, but. The answer is um, pizza. The answer is always pizza. Uh, well, we're good. <laughs> so uh, you, you talked about policy um, and the role of teacher voice in policy. So, I, you know, I mean, I think it's policymakers and, and educators sort of like, pr- you know, practitioners in the classroom I think there can at times be a pretty large gap between the two. And I don't know how much of a role that teachers have in influencing policymakers. I know we, you know, through unions and other larger scale organizations where it's like a collective voice, but to what extent do you see that as a potential solution for, um, I don't know, elevating the profession or, to getting more teacher is like, is that the solution that teachers need to be more involved in policy? Or do you think it's more, as you just mentioned, like at the local school level where um, any changes or trust just needs to, to start to happen? I think it's, I think it's both of those things. You know, I think that we have um, our public schools, our local institutions, right? That's how they were designed from the start, but increasingly you'd have no idea of that, right? It's, you know, there, it's these larger conversations that are happening um, even at the national level and in private corporations and think tanks. And it's folks who are not teachers who are leading those conversations. So I think it's both of those things. I think we need to defer to teachers at the local level. And then I think at those upper levels where decisions are increasingly being made, I think we need to be pulling teachers into those, right? Educators into those positions um, to, to lead those conversations. I, I, I like it how the private sector about every decade or decade and a half weighs in to tell <laughs> to tell public education what we're not doing and should be doing. Um, and then teachers have to conform. All right. Quiz time. There's a fly fishing question. Oh, That's gosh. very good. <laughs> so Diana, it's been a pleasure having you on the pod and joining us all the way from North Dakota. We know you are an expert in education history as well as the most famous North Dakotan that we've had on the pod, but we would like to quiz you on what you know about North Dakota's border rival, South Dakota. Answer oh, three quirky oh. questions about the Mount Rushmore state and you win a prize that oh. is not really determinative. Okay, um, you know that I've only lived here for a year and I'm from the Bronx. But- so you're, you're, so you're going to do just as well. Oh, you got a lot to live up to then. This is, <laughs> this is your true test. <laughs> All right, number, <laughs> number one. Spearfish Creek, located just north of Deadwood in Spearfish Canyon, where fly fishing is all the rage, is speedy quick. But what is not normal about Spearfish Creek? Is it A, it freezes from the bottom up, B, fly fishing is illegal in Spearfish Creek, or C, Dr. Dodd doesn't want to fish in Spearfish Creek? Wow. You know, um, I I think it's an even toss up in all three of those. I'm going to maybe go, let's go for B. Uh, It's actually, it freezes from the bottom up. Uh, A. It also holds the world record for having the greatest change in temperature in the shortest amount of time. At one point, the temperature went from negative four to 45 degrees within two minutes. Woo! Piece of uh, fun fact for you, useless information that I'm full of. (laughs) Number two, you still have two chances. South Dakota has more shoreline than which state? A, Delaware, B, Florida, or C, Maine? 
South Dakota has more shoreline. Uh-huh. What are we thinking of the shoreline? Okay, what is the little like lakes and stuff? Okay. What are the <laughs> what are the choices again? We've got Maine. Uh, Delaware, Florida, or Maine. Delaware. Uh, let's go for Delaware. I really just we're just Maine. What are, are we? <laughs> it's actually Florida. Florida. Oh, <laughs> we think of winding rivers with crystal clear water and glacial lakes fill the South Dakota landscape which means they actually have more miles of shoreline than Sunshine State. It seems a little dubious to me. Much. <laughs> I, I just I go with, a lot of I just go with what I find on Google. It's no worries. <laughs> Number three, Clark, the last one, Clark, South Dakota is home to the which world famous type of wrestling contest? Is it A, a jello wrestling contest, a B, mashed potato wrestling contest, or C, a tree stump? wrestling contest oh gosh i was gonna you know i was so sure b because that feels very wholesome somehow <laughs> but i could believe c too i let's go for b i'm just gonna stick b with- is correct <laughs> debuting in 1999 the contest is modeled on a similar event in maine and matches teams of two in a wrestling ring fashioned out of hay bales tarps and filled with mashed potatoes well, if anybody gives you a hard time, just be like, it was about South Dakota. That's right. Why would I know that? It's ridiculous. Uh-huh. Just a little fun, a little fun to end our time together. That's all. All right, D- Diana, you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Dr. Diana D'Amico Polowitz. Um, Diana, where can, um, well, tell us what you're working on and where can people find your work or anything else of note that you'd like to get out there to our listeners? Cool. Yeah. Well, so the book is widely available. So find your favorite independent bookseller or if Amazon is your thing, I suppose you could do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the next book that I'm wrapping up right now actually is an edited volume on teachers unions. It's called Walkout, Teacher Activism, Teacher Militancy, Activism and School Reform. So it brings together a bunch of pretty amazing scholars and who are all taking a different look at how are unions functioning today, right? What what role are they playing in our schools? So that should be out in uh, in a few months, actually. Awesome. Twi- Twitter handle, yes or no? Yep, Twitter handle. What is it? At Dia D-I-A, D-I-A-D-A-M-I-C-O. Correct. Very nice. <laughs> all, right, all right, Diana. Well, it's been awesome to have you on Ed's Not Dead. Uh, you've been a great guest. Uh, we'll get you back on the show sometime. Thanks for coming on. We'll, we'll see you. Thanks for having me. Stay well. Thank all you. All right, you too. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm still joined by my co-hosts, Peter and Casey. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform. Thanks again to Dr. Diana D'Amico Polowitz. She was awesome, wasn't she, fellas? It was awesome. It's great having her on. Yep. Um, We've got to get her back on when when her book on unions comes out. Yeah. That'll be good. Uh, Peter, you actually read my mind when you asked that unions question. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. No, it just seemed like, huh, I wonder how they fit into all of it from what she's yeah. studied. All right. Uh, it is that time of the show. We are bringing back, um, this is the fourth time I've mentioned it, not the Robbie segment. So I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little hurt by it, but we're, it is uh, that time. Dear Betsy. Cue the music. Um, 
So I, I want to hear what you all think about this. I mean, this is an interesting article that I found. So D- Betsy DeVos, our wonderful education secretary, who, who hopefully will not have a job in a few months. Uh, the title is, It's Not My Job to Track School Reopening Plans. So let me ask you both. Um, we have all these schools that are coming back online, you know, fully online or fully in person or hybrid in terms of some students are coming back to school and some are online. Um, DeVos says that it's not her responsibility or the federal government to, to track um, reopening plans. What are, you, what are your thoughts on uh, in a f- normal functioning administration, like what the department could be doing to really uh, not only track, but also support districts in how they are reopening? Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, because any, any, any state governments that are run by Republicans, it's not their job to track health data on COVID. (laughs) So how could it be, how could it be the the federal department of education's job? Let let me, let me rephrase, let me rephrase that. So I was uh, being, I was being cynical. (laughs) Uh, Uh, What, what should they be doing? I would say, I know this is a little bit of a slippery slope. I mean, you know, I could see that I could see the Fed expecting schools or systems that are reopening to provide some kind of a plan that aligns with standards that are given to states that they have to follow. Right. I, I'm I'm not sure that. Um, the Department of Education should review every reopening plan. Right. But I, I think there's a role to play on policy um, and some level of accountability. Right. Um, I, I would hope, you know, plans like that might 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 have stopped us from getting to where we are right now. Right. Um I wouldn't want to see plans that were onerous for local school systems and that created a lot of bureaucratic kinds of, you know, misunderstandings or hoops to jump through. But uh, let's just start with some basic expectations. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I think um, education, as we've talked about, is essentially a state by state issue. Um, and every state does it a little bit differently, has a little bit different standards, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if, if tracking state and or uh, school district, you know, I, to be honest, I don't know enough about exactly the level of information that the, the department of education collects. If that's not their job, then what is, (laughs) what what are they doing? What is their point? You know what I mean? And I agree with you, Robbie, that it's not to collect the data to, um, to then be like, this new rule, this new rule, this law, this law, you know, um, I mean, I guess that could be something that comes out of it. Uh, but it, you know, they are the aggregator of national data. You know, the, the big thing they're missing here is a national database of COVID cases where schools are being impacted. We talked about this last episode, part of the problem with schools and school districts being hesitant to open is because, there's no data, there, I don't know, no data, but there's limited data on the extent to which schools are sort of super spreaders or not right. super spreaders as the case may be, because 
the approach has been, well, stick your head in the sand and pretend like this doesn't matter or sorry, pretend like it doesn't exist. Right. And if you just think that it doesn't exist, it won't. Um, and there, I, that, that is really where my, I think I have the biggest issue in the flaw in their approach is, is just pretending that this is not there. So yeah, don't go in and, and start, you know, like micro, um, you know, micromanaging, but at the same time, it's like you can collect data so that we can make informed scientific decisions off of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, an executive would say to his cabinet officials, for example, you're sitting at the table or her cabinet officials, you would say, okay, miss, uh, DHHS person, Department of Education person, <laughs> right? Health and Human Services, Department of Education. Work together to have, have expectations for states right. about health metrics and education. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty basic. Right. I mean, there's been no coordination at the federal level on, you know, let alone the health of our citizens so, I mean, I, it, all that seems to me to be pretty basic governance and leadership. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I want, so I'll give you an example. The, so the CARES Act Education Stabilization Fund uh, that was signed into law in March uh, provided $30.75 billion available for uh, COVID-19 related purposes. $14 billion for Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, thirteen point five billion dollars for elementary and secondary schools emergency relief fund and three billion for governor's emergency education relief fund so for an example for ohio as a state i'll give you an example ohio got 489 489 million dollars for their elementary and secondary schools emergency relief fund now that that's an an exorbitant amount of money that could be even more targeted if there was some sort of uh, like you're saying, foundational guidance coming from the Department of Education. Coercive well, and I mean, the CARES Act has <laughs> trickled down to some specific guidance at the local school level. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are CARES Act programs that are being implemented in school systems that are mandated by the state. Um, you know, interventions to make up for learning loss that mm-hmm. have to follow certain criteria. Um, but again, I mean, I with with our friend Betsy, I just think it's so hysterical how, um, I mean, help me out here. She, anything that conflicts with freedom, she doesn't, she, she, the, the department has no oversight of this. And yet the department of ed is going to point out the the massive failings of public education. So I mean, there's a reason why she's had her job for four years. And this is this is this is also the Republican paradox, right? Yeah, they believe in less governance, generally, in more free market capitalism. So when the Republicans are elected to federal agencies, their you know their interpretation of doing a good job is doing nothing. Right. Yeah. Right. And and guess guess how many of the uh, uh, how many new voices will come out of the woodwork in January if if Joe Biden wins. How many uh, of our fiscal conservative friends will suddenly become fiscally conservative again? Can't afford it. (laughs) We can't can't afford it. We can't have another stimulus. (laughs) Nope. All right. Uh, That was a good one, Mr. Sins. Short and sweet. Thank you for indulging me on uh, returning. uh, Oh, oh, but let me ask this. Sure. This is 
we've, we've, we've almost let a moment go by. <laughs> um, today is the 20th of October, uh, folks. By the time we record another episode, there may never be another Dear Betsy episode. Oh, no. Good Lord. <laughs> that is... You know, I didn't think about but, that. But we, bittersweet. But we, did say, we did say we were going to do a massive Dear Betsy retrospective at some point, right? Oh, we have to. I mean, we need Crable to do some pretty awesome editing with some sound clips like he did last <laughs> time. All right. We'll, we'll be, do a top dear, 10. We'll, dear John we'll do a top <laughs> Yeah, we'll do a top 10 Dear Betsy uh, uh, segment at some point. All right, uh, quiz. All right, you ready? So, uh, Dr. Dodd, can you remind us uh, what the score was (laughs) last time? I think Crable got shut out. No, he got one. No, he got one. No, I think he got got zero. All right, so, Mr. Crable, you're going to go first this time since you lost abysmally last time. So, uh, three questions each, and uh, are you ready? I'm I'm ready. Okay, so this is a a a a, a potpourri potpourri of uh, questions, if you will, under All different right. topics. Number one: Animal rescuers in California made an early morning visit to a bank to chase away an unusual pair of masked bandits. What did they find? Did they find a two raccoons, b two deer, or c two beavers? Uh, two raccoons. That is correct. Two raccoons. There were muddy paw prints on a tree outside the bank, so we suspect the raccoons climbed the tree to the roof of the bank and somehow managed to crawl into the air ducts and fell through the ceiling tiles onto the floor of the bank. I appreciate the easy question to start. Thank you. (laughs) Number two, a U.S. company is offering fans of breakfast a mask that does what? Does it A, smell like coffee, B, smells like bacon, or C, smells like pancakes? Uh, bacon is the craze, man. That is correct. Smells like bacon. Hormel said the black label breathable bacon mask uses the latest in bacon smell technology to mm. give the wearer the experience of smelling bacon anytime they don the COVID-19 protection accessory. And number three, uh, this is not a multiple choice question because clearly I didn't come up with, um, oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Choices? I, yeah. Um, uh, let's see here. All right. Ready? That's good radio right there. I got it. Sorry. You can, you can edit that out. (laughs) Number three, uh, number three, what was dumped into a lake in prospect park in New York city? A, a bag of snake heads, B, two bags of eels or C, two bags of zebra mussels. Uh, I will go with a. Actually, I should have taken C. Actually, no, it was uh, B, two bags of eels bizarrely released in Brooklyn's Prospect Park Lake could potentially cause big problems for native species. Mm. Not really sure why it happened, and people aren't really sure how to what to do about it. So, well, Mr. Crable, uh, so I guess you the question three, is, buddy. I guess the question is, so were they alive? Yes, they were alive. Uh, someone was. Someone found them and started pulling one of the bags away, and they just scurried into the water. Oh, man. Yeah. And they're not, gonna be able, you, they're not going to be able to get them out either. Have either one of you ever caught an eel? I have not, but I imagine I've it's seen hard. I've many moray eels but while, while diving or swimming. Yeah. Uh, catching an eel on a, on a fishing rod is one of the kind of scarier things. <laughs> <laughs> How many have you caught? Especially when they're big. Uh, I, I watched my brother pull a massive eel out of a creek right near the beach in Bethany, Delaware. 
Ooh. that we, uh, it was, I was probably about eight and I was completely freaked out by the whole thing. Wow. It was huge. Well, they, they smack you with their tail. Yeah. They're just big and, and slimy and thick and, uh, Eel- eelish. You don't, yeah. Eelish. You don't expect when you're, when you're crabbing or fishing that you're going to pull out like a three foot eel. <laughs> All right, right. Artie, you ready? You have to beat two out of three. Number one, a Brazilian senator was caught hiding cash where? A, in his freezer, B, in the vents of his house, or C, between his butt cheeks? (laughs) See, Crable didn't get a question like this. He got a a raccoon question. Uh, I'm I'm just going to throw caution to the wind on this quiz. I'm going to say... The butt cheeks. That is correct. Between hey. his butt cheeks, uh, being investigated for uh, fraud, apparently. Um, very good. Number two in California, Carmen and Travis Long's Pirates of the Caribbean Halloween display is so realistic that people keep calling nine one one to report what? A that there's a fire. B that a Johnny Depp impersonator is actually walking by the display, heckling the neighbors. Or C that the only thing it says on repeat is where has all the rum gone on a loudspeaker? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with uh, Captain Jack Sparrow, Johnny Depp B. Actually it's a, that there's a fire. The display includes a fake house fire in California. No. Firefighters who responded to the Riverside residents were so impressed with the faux blaze that they high fived Travis and told him great job. <laughs> of California of all places, fake fires. Number three, all right, Dr. D, this is big time. A town in Quebec has finally changed its toxic name. What's the now defunct name of this town? Is it A, asbestos, B, arsenic, or C, mercury? I thought you were going to say redskin. Arsenic, hold on. No, no, no. What are they? Give me the three choices again. The choices are asbestos, arsenic, or mercury. Um, I'm going to go with, I want to go A or B. I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with B. The answer is A, asbestos. And the town will now be called Val de Sources. After a vote of nearly 52% of the voting population above 14, age 14, the city initially grew from the development of an asbestos mine around a large deposit of the substance discovered there in 1897. Uh, And the town thrived on asbestos mining and uh, product manufacturing. Um, The original, this is a fun fact here for you. The original list of name choices had to be scrapped due to controversial choices, one of which was Apalone, A-P-A-L-O-N-E, which is in honor of an indigenous species of turtle, which was suggested by Greenpeace in Canada. You'd appreciate this, Robbie, with one person writing, quote, I wouldn't be proud to say that I live in a soft turtle city. <laughs> so there you I go. I was thinking about mining, and I should have gone with asbestos. Um, I'm pretty sure that arsenic does not come from minds i had to, um, it's hard to find the non-answers i'll tell you that yeah that was a that was a that was a tough one um all right that was a good quiz crable beat me what two to one you got he, it that's right 
So, uh, but you're still up, I think, in points overall. All right. Well, there's always, there's always, there's always the next quiz. <laughs> Thank you again for indulging me. Uh, Dr. D'Amico Apollowitz did not, she did not do all that well in her quiz. Well, she's a new resident of the Dakotans, you know? Yeah, you could have hit her with a, with a, with a, she's from the Bronx. You could have hit her with a New York quiz. Oh, well, I was, I, I should have, but I was also going to put in something about a little dig about why do we have two Dakotas, but I didn't know how long she's actually lived there and how much connection she has to the place. So I didn't want to offend either the North or South Dakotans. Got it. We didn't get any show feedback about our, um, our Eddie VH tribute from the first episode. No, we did no. not. Yeah, no, I didn't hear anything. Man, I thought Lame. that was, I thought that was pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Did you watch uh, Bill Burr's uh, tribute at the end of SNL? No, I need to see that. You need to watch it. It's, a, it's one of the best SNL episodes in a very long time. I, was I'm, it this Was it this past Saturday night? No, it was the Saturday prior. Was that the first? Was that the Was that the season opener? Yeah, uh, second episode. All right, the cold open. There, there's one. Uh, sketch real at the end of bill burr where it's like a sam adams um commercial you know fluke uh fake commercial and it's one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life (laughs) Uh, i have found the cold opens to be rather lame i love the cold opens that's my favorite part i know i usually love them but i uh, what's her name that's playing uh Jim Carrey as Joe Biden, it makes my life. I don't, like coming I don't out think, with the. I don't think there's enough substance there. Because it's a boring race. <laughs> I know. I mean, but it's Alec a Baldwin boring. Is, it's a boring race. Trump is the same person he was in 2016. He's so funny, though. He's such a moron. No, <laughs> not Trump. Sad. Alec Baldwin. Oh, Alec Baldwin is Trump he's, is so good. He's hysterical. Huge. <laughs> Tracy yeah. thought, I, I, Casey thought I said that Trump was, was so funny. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. I, I was like, I thought we were beyond that. Like maybe January 2017. Yeah, he's funny. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Uh, as always, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC. I don't really follow us on twitter so i don't even know what you're posting you guys oh tweet- all good stuff. radical so good. Radical stuff out there i maybe next episode we can at least end on our fantasy football teams and update everybody on them because <laughs> i, I want to share about mine all right and check out casey's blog uh equity sticks are not the answer on edsnotdead.com it's very popular as always Ed's not dead is brought to you by pulp education Thank you to Pulp Education. I'm not going to read the rest of the ad. Um, all right, fellas, what do you got coming up? What's coming up? Uh, I'm making tunes, man. I'm just making number one hits over here. Oh, coming great. Well, I got to your, I listen to your song. I haven't listened yet. I have yeah. to admit. Yeah, go on Spotify, YouTube, Soul Witness. Uh, it's called What You Say. It's good. Yeah, I so put it in my, my, my school's videos. Nice, man. Yep. I will listen. I will listen tonight. So you're just making tunes. You're like, you're like, uh, you're like Steve Winwood over there that uh, basically played every instrument on Ark of the Diver. Yeah, uh, a, a lot less talent, but other than that, very similar. Yes. <laughs> now I think you're. I think you're today, Steve Winwood. <laughs>
Stevie, Stevie Winwood's good. You like traffic, Mr. Krabs? Yeah, for sure. The yeah, low yeah. spark of high heeled boys. Uh, the, the greatest, greatest album ever made. The, the greatest name of for any song ever, really. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a great album. Yeah, yeah, great album. All right, Mr. Siddons, what do you got going on? How's Frida? I, there, do you want to share with the listeners the big news on Frida? Oh, well, she started walking. So that's the big news. And it's, uh, and it's uh, not a fluke. It's like she's ready to rock. <laughs> yeah. Opens a whole new whole new can of worms and so funny. She's really funny. The the, the easy like getting a little person getting a little personality. Um it's it's pretty 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 awesome. Yeah. Not long after the walking, the no the no starts. <laughs> so you got the two happening at the same time. No, Oof. and I'm gonna and I, and I'm gonna not stop moving. <laughs> I All right, I I am going salmon fishing uh, in upstate New York in two weeks. So don't try to find me in the first <laughs> are you, week. Are you, are you voting up in Canada or did you send in your vote already? No, but I will be in the, in the jaws of the beast of where I'm going fishing. What does that mean? I mean that it is, it is Trump country where I'm going. Oh, uh, but you, so, but, but you'll be up there for the election, like during the election. I will be I will be driving there the day after the election. Ooh, that's Frida's birthday. There you go. All right. <laughs> do you bring Do you bring the Salomon home to eat, or do you, is you all catch and release? Uh, you know we are going to bring a cooler this time. We have yeah. not brought any of the Salmon home to eat. Um, uh, the Kings are running out of Lake Ontario, and um, if you get them fresh, you can definitely bring them home. It's it's. The timing is going to matter. Once you get into November, they start to become what they call zombie fish, um, where their skin starts to peel off and they turn white and you wouldn't want to eat them. So uh, while you're <laughs> fishing for, for salmon, <laughs> so do you, gross, right? do, will you be reading uh, the satanic verses? I, I'm, I'm a little... Salmon Rushdie. Or is that different? Uh, is that different? Uh, that was, That's uh, different. Uh, that quite, all right. On that, <laughs> on that, on that, on that Jim yeah. Siddons joke. <laughs> that uh, actually is literally a Jim Siddons joke. <laughs> we, we are going to sign off. Uh, thanks as always for joining Ed's not dead. Spread the word about the pod. Uh, we appreciate you listening. And uh, thanks again to Dr. Diana D'Amica Polovich. She was a great guest. Uh, send us some show feedback. We will read it on the air. Boys, it's good to see you. And we'll talk to our listeners in a couple weeks. Thanks for tuning in. Say bye. Bye.